in a podcast just yesterday, interviewing the head of the Conservative Heritage Foundation, Jordan Peterson articulated his collectivist conservative philosophy and why he sees it as opposed to Ayn Rand's philosophy. Like all collectivists, his arguments are based on straw man misrepresentations of rational individualism. Now, here at the Ayn Rand Institute, we make it a priority to correct popular misrepresentations of Ayn Rand. And so to that end today, Ankar Gatte and I are going to defend Rand against Peterson's really very crude takedown uh, of Rand's philosophy. We'll also talk about what it exposes about the rather sorry intellectual state of the contemporary conservative movement. So welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I am Ben Baer, fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me is senior fellow Ankar Gatte. Ankar, we're back for the second time this week uh, to comment on uh, developments on the political right. Um, maybe you could start us off by saying just a bit about what Jordan Peterson has been up to lately and what you think might be the context for the clips that we are about to comment on from his podcast. Yes, one of his projects is what's called the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship uh, that just had a conference, I think at the end of October in London in the, in the UK. And I, I suspect that this is part of that project and that kind of what he's trying to rally as a into a, a cause or maybe even a movement. And if, if you look at the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, if you look at their statement of vision, uh, which came out in February 2023, so just uh, six months ago or something, eight months ago, what you see there is part of the way the the problem or the challenge that they're, they he the, the the they think of themselves as addressing it's put this way it's put in philosophical terms that part of the problem and challenge we're facing that we have to overcome is reductionist enlightenment rationality five centuries of enlightenment rationality has brought us to a world that supposedly is devoid or stripped of values and meaning. And what we need to return to, or we need to get back to, is uh, a faith in traditions, uh, or you could put it faith and tradition, but in the, in the statement it's put as a faith in traditions. That's what we have to get back to. And if you think of like, that's the analysis of the challenge and the problem. Talking to someone like the, the president of the Heritage Foundation, they very much are in this vein of, yeah, rationality is a problem and we need to go back to faith, family, God, tradition. And so that you would want to have a conversation with this person and what have they been up to and trying to get some kind of connection with them. It certainly would be understandable from the point of view of this project and how it sees today's world problem. Good, thanks for that. So <clears throat> what we're gonna do for the rest of the day today is uh, we're going to play you some clips from this podcast that came out just yesterday. And uh, notably, even though the ostensible purpose of the podcast was to interview this guy from the Heritage Foundation, this is how the Jordan Peterson people are marketing it. Uh, this is the preview image on YouTube. So. They, they obviously think that commenting on Ayn Rand is going to touch a nerve. And well, I guess it did. Here we are though, to explain why these comments are uh, in many ways misguided. And there's so much to talk about and so many, uh, so many philosophic issues that are in play here and, and errors. But I think what we wanted to do is to start by remarking on just the most egregious one uh, and so that we're not necessarily going to go in order here, but uh, pick the most egregious misrepresentation. And then I think the, the remainder of them will more or less be in order. So let's let's cue up the first of these where he is describing what he takes to be Ayn Rand's view of self-interest. I want to re return to Rand uh, and Rand for a minute. I've just been rereading out the shrug, which I do uh, oddly enough about every 15 years. And I figured out one of the core problems with her doctrine. It might be the core problem. 
So she assumes that self-interest is the appropriate governing principle. But she never really defines what constitutes self-interest. And that's a big problem. So because you can have narrowly hedonic self-interest. And it, Rand actually wanders into that territory because her protagonists, Rourke and Dagny Taggart and so forth, do have and express quite continually their right to do whatever the hell they want, whenever the hell they want to, and that they should be guided by no other principle in some sense than the gratification of their own desires. But that's exactly what the hedonists on the left say. This is just, uh, <clears throat> when, I, when I heard this first uh, Ankar, I, I, my, I had to pick up my jaw because it is inconceivable to me that someone could have read this book more than once including allegedly recently and come away with the idea that this is her view of self-interest. If, if this is what he thinks her view is, then he may, his eyes may have passed across the, the words on the page of the book, but he didn't internalize them very much. And just, just, I mean, there's so many ways we could demonstrate this, but just to do it in a nutshell, I thought I'd, I'd dig up a paragraph from Galt's speech, which is in the book uh, where she states her very view on this issue, uh, stating what her view of happiness is uh, and what it isn't. And here is that passage. Uh, I think we have it on screen. Happiness is not to be achieved at the command of emotional whims. Happiness is not the satisfaction of whatever irrational wishes you might blindly attempt to indulge. Happiness is a state of non-contradictory joy a joy without penalty or guilt, a joy that does not clash with any of your values and does not work for your own destruction, not the joy of escaping from your mind, but of using your mind's fullest power, not the joy of faking reality, but of achieving values that are real, not the joy of a drunkard, but of a producer. Happiness is possible only to a rational man, the man who desires nothing but rational goals, seeks nothing but rational values, and finds his joy in nothing but rational actions. And... I mean, this is just sort of the nonfiction style summary of the philosophy that you get toward the end of the book. But if you're paying attention to the events and the characters and the actions of the story, it's also hard to see how you could walk away with it with anything like the idea that they have a hedonic view of self-interest or happiness. I mean, Dagny Taggart, who's the pr uh, president of a railroad, quits her job when she's ordered by the government to be a slave master over her employees. Uh, Reardon, who's the, the steel magnate, uh, he's given the opportunity to have a great deal of government money if only he sells them his uh, excellent new invention, this metal, and he, he refuses to sell it because he doesn't know what they're going to do with it. The hero of the novel, uh, who I don't want to say too much about uh, because... Maybe some in our audience haven't read this story, but uh, he is at one point given the opportunity to have an enormous amount of power over the entire country, and he refuses it. And of course, none of these characters really want to do these things, but that's because they know that their good, their happiness, their self-interest doesn't consist in just whatever they want to do or whatever anyone could want to do. What they want to do is to create purpose with their lives uh, by engaging in rational, productive action. And that is just the opposite of hedonism. Ankar, do you have uh, further thoughts on the Peterson's remarks on this issue? Yes, you, you said your jaw dropped on the floor when you uh, saw this clip. And this is his, he says he's read the book more than once in his characterization of the heroes in Atlas. I had the same initial reaction for the same reason that if you've read the book, the idea that the heroes do whatever the hell they want, whenever the hell they want to, that's a person, that's a way of characterizing, they just follow their whim, whatever desire strikes them. And these are characters who have the longest range vision for their life and career that you can imagine. And then they're trying to build it. Like Dagny Taggart has a vision. She wants to run a railroad. Women don't run railroads, but she doesn't care about that. She's going to persevere in this vision. And you see across years of what she does to create the railroad into something great. And the idea that's like somebody following whims and doing whatever the hell strikes them whenever it strikes them. It's just crazy to think that that's what it is. For Hank Reardon, 
He spends 10 years creating a metal superior to steel. And you get some description of the dedication to that uh, endeavor. And again, the, the idea that you do that by following whims is crazy. But on the other hand, so then when I, after the initial reaction, I thought, yeah, but this fits my view of Jordan Peterson. So I know many fans of Jordan Peterson think this he's a genius level intellect. I've heard some people say when people criticize, like he doesn't understand this and he's wrong about this, that, oh, but he's playing 3D chess. He's seeing things you can't fathom and so on. Here, you can check. Uh, I encourage any of his fans to go read Atlas Shrugged. And he reads it, he gets some value out of it. Go read it. And then when you finished it, think, could you possibly characterize the heroes as their hedonist who follow their whims and whatever whim strikes them, that's what they do. The villains in the story, you might characterize some of them like that, but you can't characterize the heroes like that. And that's just, he doesn't understand the novel. And the reason he doesn't understand it is at a philosophical level, Jordan Peterson is very conventional. He's not radical. He doesn't have new insights. His interpretation of selfishness is the standard interpretation. What selfishness means is you're a hedonist who does whatever strikes them. You function on whim. What it does to other people, you don't care. What it does to your long-range career, you don't care. That, that's the conventional conception of selfishness. That's what he's operating with. And he's seen the novel through that lens rather than understanding, yeah, but Ayn Rand's challenging that. The novel, in, in part, is saying, no, you need a new, a radically new conception of self-interest. It's not this hedonistic version and caricature that the people and intellectuals make of it. And he can't see that. And if you just have the conventional characterization, you'll get, yeah, Dagny and Hank are selfish. And that must mean that they do whatever the hell they want, whenever the hell they want it, even though they so obviously don't do that in the story. And that's, that, that's just a conventional mindset coming to Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, one thing uh, strikes me about his attitude is it, if you know anything about Peterson, and you'll hear this coming out in some of the other clips that we play, he's very big on the idea that people need to take responsibility for their lives, they need to find meaning, they need to find purpose. And it's remarkable that he would characterize people like Dagny and, and Reardon in the way that he does. With that in mind, given that you would think that the kind of long range vision that each of them has uh, for their careers, for their projects. You'd think if that's not a way of bringing meaning and purpose into your life, what is? And it makes me think then that, well, this is, this is that same conventionality coming out in his thinking. He has the same conventional attitude that uh, meaning and purpose and spiritual things are on one side of uh, the universe and business and commerce and money making are on another. But that's exactly the opposition that Ayn Rand is challenging. And, and for those of you who are looking at this book, I mean, pay attention especially to the character of Reardon, because there's many ways in which Reardon has uh, Peterson's conventional view, but he's struggling with it because he knows on some level that his life is filled with meaning, but he's picked up this conventional view from the culture and he regards himself as a, a moral person but he struggles with it. He, he realizes that this is a contradiction at, at the heart of his soul. Uh, his friend Francisco in particular helps him struggle with this and resolve this conflict. So uh, there's, there's, a whole, there's a whole lot to say about that, but we should, I think, move on to the next clip. Uh, and this is one that comes right after the one that we just looked at, which I find incredibly revealing. And uh, this is an aspect of his thought I didn't think he was into, but you'll see what I mean. And so this begs the question of what constitutes the individual whose self-interest is at stake. And where Rand makes a mistake is she doesn't understand that there's a set of constraints that operate on what constitutes individual self-interest. So you're, you don't exist just right now. You exist out, say, decades into the future and in an attenuated form in your descendants. And what that implies is that every action you undertake right now has to be bound by the necessity of not betraying that sequence of future selves. And I don't think there's any difference in a game theory 
from a game theory perspective, of the collective that is you across time and other people. So I think that enlightened self-interest and social interest are exactly the same thing. And I don't think that Rand understood that, right? Is that she seems to believe that there's this internal self, which is the part that's self-interested, that's almost like the internal self the radical leftists insist upon being able to establish such things as gender self-identification, right? That's 100% autonomous and unmoored that can operate itself as an autonomous governing principle. It's almost like a deity. And it's, a, yeah. it's the same, it's the conservative version of the same mistake that the radicals on the progressive side are making. I think that's exactly right. In fact, you talked about you yourself. There's so many things to say about this. The argument that he's giving here is essentially as follows. When you take responsibility for your life, when you plan, when you make uh, long range plans to take a course of action over the course of years to achieve goals way down the road. Well, there's a way in which uh, the, the person who is going to achieve those goals in the future doesn't yet exist because uh, it's in the future. And so there's a way in which you, you're sacrificing for the sake of that future person. And it's, a, it's not a self-interested a self act because it's not you in the, in the future. And his idea is that, well, that's no different than sacrificing for other people, whether in the future or in the present. This is an argument he is parroting from a philosopher named Derek Parfit. I, I'd be shocked if he didn't get it from Parfit. This is the argument Parfit made famous. And there are so many problems with it. And it's so ironic that he's using it. It's a, it's a bad argument because contrary to what he says, not being able to see any differences between these two kinds of cases, there's extraordinary differences. Uh, there is an obvious difference between your future and other people's future or other people's existence. You are, you are a being who endures through time. You're not just a set of little slices of consciousness that each disappears with the next moment and is completely reborn in uh, the, 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 the person of another. You living creatures are creatures that act and live and grow through time. That's just what it means to be a living creature. It's what it means to be a self. So the, the premise of it is just completely the wrong metaphysics. But I mentioned it's being ironic, and, and that's because he's the one who makes such a big deal about the importance of taking responsibility and about meaning and purpose. But now it turns out that he, he's also into this notion, which, by the way, Parfit gets from Buddhism, that there is no self that endures over time. So we're supposed to be responsible for ourselves, but we don't actually have a self. Uh, I should mention, by the way, that Parfit uses this argument uh, in order to argue against egoism, yes, and for utilitarianism. This is why I'm saying, this is why we announced at the beginning, Parfit is a collective, sorry, uh, Peterson is a collectivist. This isn't the only place where it comes out, but this is one place where it's particularly pronounced to the, idea, to the extent that he's drawing on this idea. We don't have any self. The, our present uh, time slice of a consciousness exists in relation to our future in the same way that it does to other people. That's the metaphysics that utilitarians use to argue that we should be concerned with the greatest happiness for the greatest number not for any individual self-interest. And Parfit, by the way, was a radical leftist himself, which is totally consistent uh, <clears throat> with his utilitarianism and this collectivistic Buddhist worldview that, that Peterson is now endorsing and promoting. And uh, I mean, there were times in the past when I've heard people characterize Peterson as uh, some kind of individualist. And there are things he says occasionally that sort of sound that way, especially when he talks about taking responsibility. But you can't take responsibility if there is no you to take it. Thoughts, Ankar? Uh, this is the kind of theory that gives academia a bad name, but deservedly so. That if you tell just somebody, an American who has some common sense, Oh, that like there's no difference between your future selves and other people. It will be like, you've got a PhD and a professorship at a university, and you can't tell the difference between um, your future and somebody else's future. But that that 
Peterson will just graft on, like keep pulling it off the shelf. This is an argument that will help me. So on, so I'm gonna and, and then give it pseudoscientific that it's oh, this is what games theory has shown, or from a game theory perspective, you can't say anything against this. It's marshalling arguments for something that is uh, perverse, but it fits into so it fits into a portrait of his portrait of self-interest that he brings up that Ayn Rand doesn't recognize the constraints and doesn't recognize this argument. It's not that she doesn't recognize it. It's she views it as BS. Um, and if you read Atlas Shrugged, you can find some of the reasons for why she would. But the, if, if your conception of the self and self-interest is whim-driven, which is what Peterson's is, it's what it means to be self-interested is do whatever the hell you want, whenever the hell you want it. Um, and he thinks that's an Atlas Shrug. It certainly is not an Atlas Shrug. But it's his conception of self-interest. Then it becomes plausible. Well, what you need is a constraint on that. Because, yeah, if you're this whim-driven person, um, that's not going to be successful. So what responsibility and so on means is clamping down on the self. And that, in the end, as you said, for Parfit's kind of view, it becomes erasing the self. But that you would think that we've got to constrain this. The self is something bad. Um, and, and what morality and responsibility and purpose and meaning are about is constraining that. That's part of why the attraction to faith and tradition. It's true that religion and Christianity was also at war with the self, with the genuine self that thinks, that makes choices. And so the, the Christianity was, no, you're not an individual who has a mind who can figure out things for yourself. You have to await God's grace and merge into the collective and be led by the church and so on. That fits this kind of worldview. It fits heritage's kind of worldview, which is, again, part of why they're talking it about this um, issue. But a proper conception of self-interest and a proper conception of morality is not it's a constraint. It's not about um, honing in some vicious element uh, uh, or irrational element in you. What morality properly is about is teaching you how to achieve your self-interest and happiness. And again, if you read Atlas Shrugged, part of the story um, and what's really interesting about it is you've got individuals dedicated to pursuing their happiness and self-interest and thinking about, is what I'm doing actually productive? And that is helping me achieve happiness, helping me achieve my vision in life that I want to achieve. And that's so, like, that's the opposite of doing whatever the hell they want. It's they're doing things and wondering, is this really advancing my happiness? And morality is supposed to be, and in Ayn Rand's vision is, guidance for that goal, not to constrain the self, but to actually achieve your self-interest and happiness. Yes, uh, in her statement of what she thought the theme of Atlas Shrugged was, she described it as uh, about the role of man's mind in existence and as a corollary, the demonstration of a new rational code of morality. and. Uh, just what that code is, is, is one of the things that the characters struggle with and which uh, the hero gives a, an explicit statement of toward the end of the book. And for more, check it out. Let's go to the next clip. The first comment in question, I suppose, is one on the strategic front. So I think the conservative movement, movement has weakened its argument for the decentralization of power by aligning that argument too closely with libertarian neocon and free market principles, because it often devolves into a, like a, a proclamation that a government that's too large is too dangerous, which I do believe, but that's not the crucial issue as far as I'm concerned, that if the government was smaller, the tax burden would be less. If the tax burden would be less, that would be better because people should be economically free and they should be economically free because, well, the free, because the society functions better when the free market is as untrammeled as possible. And so it's kind of a, in some ways, it's an, an Ayn Rand philosophy of, you know, rugged individualism conjoined with libertarian admiration for the free market. Now, there's a better reason to discuss the necessity of devolving power down the hierarchy to lower levels. The first thing I would say is it's not power. If you deprive people of local responsibility, you deprive them of all the meaning in their life. 
because the meaning in their life is actually a consequence of taking responsibility for themselves, taking responsibility for their marriage, for their family, for their local community, for their business enterprises, for their town, for their state, for their country, in that order, right? And then maybe to God. And responsibility obtains at every one of those levels. That's the subsidiarity idea, of course. But the purpose for that is that if you devolve that responsibility down the hierarchy, you reinstill the meaning in people's lives, the meaning that sustains them through catastrophe. And so, because you've got to ask, you know, well, why, why should the typical young person listen to a conservative who says, well, you should take more local responsibility? Because it sounds like a lot of work, a lot of duty, and something that's not particularly hedonically gratifying. But if the answer is, well, if you forego that responsibility, you have nothing to sustain you when you suffer, and you forego the possibility of formulating the extremely tight and reciprocal social interactions that buttress you through life, and you deprive your life of intrinsic meaning, then that seems like a very bad idea for you. It's been a very long time. People assume that there's no meaning outside of a kind of a narrow hedonism, or that there's no meaning at all. And, that, and that's, a very dismal, that's a very dismal set of propositions, and it is a weak place in the progressive enterprise, because sustaining meaning is found in responsibility, and really in self-sacrifice, or at least the sacrifice of the narrow self. So one thing to note here is how he he regards Ayn Rand as a libertarian, and there's uh, much to say about why he's mistaken about that. We've done podcasts on it recently, as recently as a month and a half ago, I think, uh, though it does perhaps provide some explanation for why he thinks uh, she has the view of self-interest that he does. There certainly are many uh, self-professed libertarians who have a more hedonic, subjectivist view uh, of morality and use that as the basis of their politics. But that was one of the reasons Ayn Rand rejected libertarianism and, and, and uh, disavowed any involvement with that movement. But leave that aside for the moment. Uh, it's interesting to note here, I, I said before he, that he makes a great deal of use of the concept of responsibility. It's interesting to look at the way he's using it in the, uh, in the remarks that we just saw he uses it in a way that draws on what I think is a very legitimate element of truth, but distorts it in a way to serve his collectivist ends because uh, there is value in taking responsibility. What does that mean? In fact, it, when, when we talk about taking responsibility for your life, what that means is, you, if you have goals that you want to achieve, you have to figure out what are the necessary causes to bring about the effects. You have to be the one to discover them. You have to be the one to do the work. And as a corollary, uh, you have to be the one to deal with the consequences of your actions. If for whatever reason you miscalculated or didn't do the work. And as a result, your actions uh, result in uh, some kind of destruction that you need to uh, recompense someone for. That's what taking responsibility for your life is about. It's about a respect for causality, for cause and effect. Uh, what about some of the other things though, that he mentions you need to take responsibility for? So one of them he mentions is family. Now, I think if you understand that in the right way, it comes to the same thing. If you want to have a family, if you value relationships, if you if other people in your life give you joy and you want to keep them in your life, then again, there are necessary uh, causes to enact that effect. You have, to, uh, you have to build the kind of character that is worthy of other people's love. You have to be a productive individual who can provide for his family if you want them to be around, etc. So there's uh, an extent, there's, a, there's an important respect in which this is the very same issue, uh, the very same way in which we take responsibility for everything in our lives. But of course, that then starts to bleed into something else, which is quite different. Uh, and I imagine he's, he probably thinks about responsibility to family in the same way as he thinks about these other issues, like taking responsibility for country and taking responsibility for God. Unlike the kind of responsibility you can take for your life when you choose a goal that you want to achieve and therefore need to enact the causes to attain it, here he suddenly starts to talk about unchosen goals, unchosen obligations, unchosen commandments that are issued by a God, uh, where it's no longer an issue of enact the causes needed to bring about the chosen effect, but do these things just because you're told. And of course, the way that conservatives often think about obligations to family is along these lines. While there can certainly be chosen obligations to family along the lines I sketched before, 
Their view, of course, is you're born into a family. You have unchosen obligations. You have an unchosen obligation to have a family. Uh, you have an unchosen obligation to have children very often, even if you don't want them. And this is just this is what Ayn Rand called a package deal, where you 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 try to integrate two things that are essentially different, and in doing so, sell uh, what is in fact a dishonest idea. So he's drawing on the legitimate concept of responsibility here, the the importance of uh, knowing the cause needed to bring about an effect to achieve chosen goals, and because that's some because you can put that in terms of responsibility. He then packages it together with a very different kind of quote unquote responsibility, although it's disingenuous even to call it that, because how can you be responsible for a goal that has not been set by you, that has not been chosen by you, which is exactly the kind of religious commandment approach to morality that he is herein articulating. And I'll just mention one more thing, which is that you also see in these comments uh, coming out this attitude of his that you see everywhere uh, whenever he talks about how life is all about suffering and all that ethics can do for you is help you to cope with suffering by giving you some kind of meaning and purpose in your life that you, uh, I don't know, are inspired by in spite of the suffering. And it's such a malevolent view of life and a false view of life especially if you have as an alternative the, the, the approach to ethics, Ankar, that you, you were stressing before that Ayn Rand takes where the purpose of ethics uh, is, is, is not about uh, giving you something to cope with suffering. It's, it's about giving you a way to achieve happiness and, and thereby avoid suffering and to achieve happiness by achieving, creating and achieving values that give your life meaning and purpose. Notice how he brings up, it was towards the end of the clip, the issue of self-sacrifice. So there's some recognition. Yeah, what I'm calling for and what part of what responsibility means is giving up yourself, renunciation of the self. But it's not a big deal. He puts it something like, oh, well, at least your narrow self. And that's the self that is doing whatever the hell you want, whenever the hell you want. Yeah, you're going to have to give that up. But what's the big deal? But if you understand what's really going on here, it's a call to give up your self-interest and your happiness properly conceived. And this is part of what you were bringing up, that there's a kind of package deal here. And um, one way, I want to go back to the issue of family because it's very important, I think. And it also explains his reading or complete misreading of Atlas Shrug. But there's a there's a logic to the um, the error or falsehood that he's putting forth about Atlas Shrug. You said you can have a real genuine responsibility to family, a chosen family, that, and you're raising them and you're raising kids and this is what you want to do. And yeah, you are responsible for that. You can have a genuine responsibility for your country. If you, then such a thing as love of country, but that requires subjecting it to evaluation that it's you should only love your country if it's lovable, that it's worthy of love and you should work to make it something good because it's where you live and it, it's so crucial to your whole life. You should work. And Ayn Rand was insisted that people be politically active, that they care about what is happening in the country. Um, because you should want a good country, but it's not love of country, no matter what it does. It's not that, that you can't evaluate it. And it's the same for family, that family has to be evaluated. And this is all over in Atlas Shrug. And if you think of a mentality that thinks, no, you should obey your family, Regardless of what they are, regardless of what they say, regardless if they're good or not, this is very much the conservative mentality in regard to family. It's heritage's mentality in regard to family. And it's, I think, more and more Peterson's um, uh, view of family. And in Atlas Shrugged, so to say that Dagny and Hank and do whatever the hell they want, their attitude towards family is not oh yeah, I respect and am responsible for my family no matter what they do. So for Dagny, the, her brother and Dagny are 
two of the main characters through the whole story. She does not view herself as her brother's keeper. And again, from a religious mentality, and again, from heritage's perspective, no, but of course you're your brother's keeper. We've learned that for 2,000 years in morality. She repudiates that. And you could put that in the category then, she's doing whatever the hell she wants. She's not taking responsibility for her brother. But she's not taking responsibility for her brother because her brother is a vicious person. He's a bad person. And she evaluates that and then has a view that, yeah, I'm not my brother's keeper. This is my brother. And similarly, the part of the story about Hank Reardon is he is too respectful and takes too much responsibility for his family when his family is in all kinds of ways constantly trying to undermine him. And in the end, he repudiates that and he thinks he's wrong about that and he doesn't want anything to do with his family. And again, if in your worldview, family's at the center of everything, that is very threatening. And again, you can view it as Reardon is doing whatever the hell he wants. He's not just obeying and respecting his family and bailing them out. But it's again, because he evaluates. It's the, it's, you have to evaluate these things. There's something similar in regard to God. And it's why God is at the pinnacle here of how they think of that responsibility means obedience. The story of Abraham with God is precisely that he does not evaluate God. God tells him to murder his son for no reason. And instead of thinking of, God, you're an SOB for commanding this and trying to make me do this, and I don't want anything to do with you. It's, no, you've just got to go on your knees and do whatever he tells you to do. He's not subject to evaluation. And that's how they're trying to put country and family and Ayn Rand is certainly challenging that in regard to family and to country. But in Atlas, family is front and center. And for them, that's very threatening. And then you, then you can understand a little bit more why they would put it, Dagny and Reardon do whatever the hell they want in regard to family. That's, they don't do whatever the hell they want, but they don't view it as an unconditional, unquestionable, um, unevaluable, unevaluable relatable value and that's that's so against their worldview this is an aspect of the of the collectivism i think we've been speaking of the idea that you have unchosen obligations deriving from your membership in a group and an unchosen group such as family and i think a lot of people who are fans of peterson uh tend to be critical of so-called woke uh, movement, uh, egalitarianism, and I think rightly so that uh, they're critical. They, why are they critical? They they find offensive the idea that that because you are a member of a certain race, which you had no choice about, that this either gives you special privileges or makes you guilty uh, of uh, the sins of your ancestors. But what's at the root of that offense? It's, I would hope, the conviction that why should I bear guilt or enjoy privileges because of these unchosen, this unchosen membership that I have in a group? Well, uh, why is family any different from that? It's, it's different if you choose your family, of course, um, and if you, if you value them, if you think they're good people, but that's not always the way it is. And, it's not, and, and the conservative view is that that shouldn't matter because you are your brother's keeper, regardless of their character. Let's take a look at another one of these clips uh, where there's, again, I think, a misrepresentation of Rand, but also an expression of uh, uh, Peterson's philosophy that's worth commenting on. Yeah, well, that's a matter of putting everything in its proper place, right? That's, and and th it is an open question how far down the hierarchy of axiomatic primacy the free market rests. But yeah, and the more libertarian types, they're going to say it's right at the bottom. And Ayn Rand is a good exemplar of that, right? For her, the free market is the god out of which all other goods emerge. But I think the Adam Smith conceptualization, the classic British liberal conceptualization for that matter, is much more accurate, which is that once you have a society that's essentially predicated on the Judeo-Christian axioms, one of those being responsible self-sacrifice and the trust that emerges from that, then you can instantiate a free market and it can serve a, it can serve a governing function 
but it can't exist. See, I think the same thing's actually true of science. This is something I want to talk to Richard Dawkins about, because I don't think the scientific enterprise itself, the scientific enterprise is predicated on the idea that the cosmic order is good, that we can investigate it, that we can understand it, and that if we do that, that will be good. Those are all axioms of faith in my estimation, and they're also specifically Judeo-Christian axioms. There's a bunch of axioms of faith that are embedded in the Judeo-Christian tradition that are also presuppositions of the free market, like fairness in weights and measure and, and honesty in mutual exchange, right? Because like the free marketers have a hard time dealing with a simple question, like if I can screw you over and make money doing it, why shouldn't I? It's, it's an Ayn Rand principle, right? Self-interest is the most important thing. So the misrepresentation I spoke of previously was the, uh, the contention that Ayn Rand thinks of the free market as some kind of God, as though anything that emerges from it is good. Now, it's a little hard to know exactly what view he's attributing to her there, but uh, she doesn't worship the market, the free market as, a, as an end in itself. She sees it as a means to an end. Uh, she doesn't think that anything that it produces just because it's emerged from a market exchange is thereby good. People can sell bad products, uh, make irrational decisions. She thinks that they tend to be punished because of that by the market, that they will lose money in the long run. Uh, she certainly thinks that the free market is something necessary for anybody who is going to produce something valuable uh, because you need freedom to be able to think and therefore engage in rational productive action. And you need freedom, therefore, to get the meaning and purpose that comes out of productive action. So uh, it's, it's, this is not the only case in this podcast, and it's not the only case, I think, in conservative commentary on Rand's ideas, where there's an attempt to assimilate what she does to a kind of religion of its own right worshiping the market as a god, worshiping the self as a deity is something else that comes up in this podcast. And uh, it's as though the most they can do is to show, well, the real problem with Ayn Rand is that it's, it's blasphemy because it's, it's coming up with an alternate god that we worship. Uh, but in reality, it's not anything like that. She doesn't worship gods, uh, doesn't hold up anything as an unconditional object of worship. She thinks values are things that have to be created and earned uh, and as you put before, uh, evaluated uh, on the basis of rational standards. And I'll just mention one uh, further point comes under that same heading. Uh, one of the reasons that Peterson thinks that the, not everything that comes from the market is good is because he suggests, well, there's this real problem of how can you trust people who are pursuing their self-interest? Uh, they might just try to screw you over. And... I mean, as I suggested, it's, of course, always possible for people to tell lies and engage in fraud. And, and Ayn Rand, by the way, thought that was something the government should punish. But nonetheless, she did think that there was a rational reason to trust what other people would produce in pursuit of their own self-interest. Because if you're in a free market where there is trade, you are counting on other people to produce their best, knowing that you are willing to reward them with your best in exchange. And it, it's not some kind of self-sacrifice that guards against that. It's the knowledge that it's possible for people to reach mutual benefit by mutual exchange. And she thought there was a rational harmony among people's interests, that there are no conflicts of interest among rational men, because when someone really is interested in what's really uh, for their best good, they know that that consists in the things that are the product of the glory of the human mind, that the, the greatest creations, the greatest uh, ambitions have always been ones where someone creates a value that they think other people will equally value and they know they'll be rewarded for it. Angar, do you have further thoughts on this, this segment? Yeah, that clip was from beginning to end BS. The, everything Peterson said in that clip is wrong. So you've brought up some about the free market, what he says about Ayn Rand in regard to the free market, the way he looks at the free market in general, that he says something like the proponents of the free market have no answer or no good answer to this. Peterson knows very little about the free market. He comes from um, a, a kind of the more socialist left in Canada. He was early on, and it's not someone who can change their mind. I think he's changed his mind in regard to this. But to know where he's coming from, he, he was, um, I think he was even a member of the NDP 
the NDP party in Canada is more socialist than the Democrats in uh, the U.S. And that's that's his part of his worldview. You would have to study a lot the free market and free market economists to know what it really looks like to have a view of this is how the free market operates and this is therefore why it works and why it's good. Ayn Rand has a whole book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, on just how properly to think about the free market and capitalism. And there, there's, it takes a lot of thinking. But just that, that, that free market people have not thought about this. Just take something like Airbnb. How are you going to make it that, that you don't know when you rent an apartment, it's, it's going to be someone who's going to try to screw you? Well, there's all kinds of free market mechanism. It's why there's reviews, why Airbnb's interested in designating people as super hosts, um, that, because they're super reliable and everybody who goes there knows, yeah, they, they got what they advertised in terms of the apartment's clean and it has the, the amenities that it's said in the review. And, so, and I mean, there's example, example after example of how a free market actually deals with these kinds of things if you leave people free. So the idea of all oh, free market thinkers have not, and just free market actors, people who are living and producing in a free market, haven't found ways to address this is just, again, it's crazy. And, but the, the wider point that he brings up of that science comes from religion and it comes from axioms of viewing the world as good and part of that, in the end, what that means as good is means as designed by a deity and so on. That is not true, and it's not true historically. So just as you could to, to see firsthand, if you're a fan of Jordan Peterson, that he's getting Atlas Shrugged wrong, go read Atlas Shrugged. And to get that he's getting history wrong, go study history. Science comes into existence in the West in ancient Greece, pre-Christianity, and when Greece has moved away from a perspective on the world that the, the Greek, the leading Greek thinkers have moved away from a perspective on the world, that it's designed and created. The science comes from understanding that the world um, is orderly, but what order means is that things have a nature or an identity, and therefore they act causally. They are what they are and they do what they do. Um, ice floats in water because it's ice. Given the nature of what it is, this is how it will act. That's what part of what the Greeks discover. That is, it's only when they start viewing the world as it's natural, not governed by supernatural forces, not by design, that they can think, okay, so it, has, it obeys causal laws, and we have to look and think a lot about causality. And then they start thinking about causality. They're really the discoverers in an explicit sense of cause and effect. All this is pre-Christianity. And Christianity goes to war with this. Christianity wants to, when Christianity rises after or in the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire is Greek-Roman, it goes to war with Greek rationality. This is what we have to stamp out. We have to stamp out Greek science, Greek mathematics, and so because we have faith. We don't go by reason. We view reason as an enemy. And to, to say that, that the axioms of science are religion or that it's a faith like a religion is it's a hundred percent wrong. And again, it's if don't just take Peterson's word for oh, this is must be what happened. Go study some history. Go study ancient Greece and think, can I really attribute this to Christianity? And the answer that you'll get if you spend a month doing this is obviously no. Ankar, I'm looking at the clock. I think we should just do one more clip. And the one I definitely still want to do is where he talks about the characters of the book. So let's yeah. cue that one up. So that's exact, that's I, think that's exactly why her, I think that's why her work never hits. It's like Rand is not Dostoevsky, right? <laughs> There's a shallowness about her work. That's I like reading it. It's exciting. It's adventurous. It's a romantic adventure, you know, and it's got a strong hero narrative element, but it's definitely not literature. And I think the reason for that is that her characterizations are too, they're too simplified. You won't be expecting this reference, I'm sure, but I grew up reading Louis L'Amour 
books you know, written in the 20th century, but they were 20th yeah. century versions of the of the Western dime novels of the late 1800s. I read them as a boy. And every time, I guess I've read Atlas Shug three or four or five times, I don't mean to be too offensive toward Rand followers, but we've established that feelings are okay to hurt. Um, th th her characters are just as flat as the great heroes in Louis L'Amour novels who showed up in these Western towns and they were rugged individuals, right? And they're, yep. as, a, as a 10 or 11-year-old boy, those were good things to read in the same way that there's a certain value to reading Rand's work, but it's not literature. Yep. It's certainly not Dostoevsky. And in the in the great book schools that I've led, <laughs> Rand had no part of the curriculum. And, and I'll just make this final point, if I may, on, on this thread. The way this plays out in conservative politics, and by that I mean not elected officials, but to some extent the donor class, but these are these are thoughtful men and women, most of whom have made their, their own wealth themselves, is that they think that those characters from Atlas Shrugged are the model, but in reality, I mean, almost without exception, as I think about these men and women, in their own lives, they are living out that higher order thinking or set of values far better than Rand's own characters. In other words, they themselves, these devotees of Rand, personify the limitations of the book. Uh, it's, it, it can be hard to explain that to them because they're they're so committed to this mode of thought. But the, the point is, the more of those devotees of Rand who come to grips with those limitations, the quicker the American political right will be able to resolve this conundrum we have about the community and about the free market. Yeah, well, I think, I think that your characterization of Rand's books as sophisticated cowboy stories is exactly dead on. Because, first of all, she was attracted to that rugged American individualism, not least because she was an escapee from communist hell. And so she had a reason to hero-worship that, that pattern of rugged individualism. And it is associated, in a genuine sense, with the, with the great American dream, which is a real phenomenon and, and something to be reckoned with. But, but the fact that her characters, and, and some of her characters, they're almost literal cowboys. I mean, in, in, in Atlas Shrugged, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but Wyatt, that's his name. He's even got a cowboy name. Wyatt, he runs a sequence of oil, rape, oil rigs and oil explorations in the, in the frontier state of California, right? And he's definitely a cowboy in every sense of the word, and, and so are the rest of her male characters. And so um, you can also understand that that admiration for rugged individualism has a place if the rugged individuals are already nested inside like a stable couple and a stable family and a stable community and so forth. If all those preconditions are met, then you should go out on your individual adventure. But if none of them are met, if you're that sort of cowboy, you're almost indistinguishable from a psychopath. And so... Yeah, so that's a big problem. It's the same problem on the free market side, right? The free market doesn't work unless it's embedded in an underlying ethos. And that rugged individualism doesn't work unless, for exactly the same reasons, unless the underlying preconditions of stabilization are already in place. Well, I think the gentleman from the Heritage Foundation was right about one thing, and that's that if, the, if the, there's to be any improvement on the political right, they need to resolve this conundrum about the value of the community versus the value of the free market. Now, of course, I think it needs to be done in the opposite direction as he does. But the rest of what is said here, I, I, I found the most, uh, I guess, offensive is the best word. I've read Louis L'Amour. Uh, I like Louis L'Amour. But uh, to think that they're the characterization in his novels is uh, as flat as it is in Ayn Rand or vice versa is, is, is patently ridiculous. And it's, I think, evidence of shallow reading. And I know that this shallow reading of Ayn Rand's books exists. So for example, if you, if you watch those terrible movies about Atlas Shrugged, uh, where, yeah, those are pretty flat characters because they have completely excised all of the psychological and philosophical drama that you see in the book, which is what people should look for when they read the book. I mean, how many cowboy characters have you read about who, like Hank Reardon and Atlas Shrugged, struggle to redefine their entire moral code in order to decide whether or not they should give up their life's work? And that's, that's not a shallow conflict. How many cowboy characters struggle over their entire view of human nature, whether or not human beings are inherently directed toward life or are sometimes acting on a death premise. That's the struggle that Dagny Taggart uh, engages in. It's a metaphysical struggle, which also determines whether or not she is to give up her life's work. How many cowboy characters are passionate idealists who are nonetheless torn apart by the conviction that they think values can never be achieved in this world and therefore are led to destroy their greatest loves? That's, of course, the conflict that Dominique faces in The Fountainhead. I mean, uh, these are not shallow issues. Anybody who misses these issues, as I, I know many people do, they're not necessarily shallow people, but they're at the very least engaging in a kind of shallow reading. Yes, definitely. Let me say one thing in, in about heritage and one thing about Peterson's view here. 
what the head of heritage said about some of his donors is so insulting that I think if you're a fan of Ayn Rand and think you've genuinely been inspired by Atlas Shrugged or by Howard Rourke and the Fountainhead, and it's part of what has led you to build a career or a successful business, and that the head of heritage is telling you, well, there's something superficial about that and about Ayn Rand and the kind of inspiration she offers. If, if you rightly were inspired by her vision of the human potential, I, if I were you, I would not give one cent to heritage because they're pushing a view that is diametrically opposite of that, of that you should be chained to your family and to your community and to your nation and so on, not um, make something of yourself and celebrate as an individual, individual achievement and accomplishment. And I've met many people who are not objectivists, who don't think, like, I don't agree with everything of Ayn Rand's philosophy and so on, but have been genuinely inspired by Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead to make something better of their lives and of their careers. And that's one of the reasons to read the novel again, um, to see what, why people are inspired in that way, or that many people are inspired that way by the stories. That's something good about a person, not something to criticize them for. And then on Peterson's side, I think it's very revealing that the comparison to Dostoevsky, of Ayn Rand's not Dostoevsky. Now, I do think, as you were saying, in terms of the depth of her characterization, she is the equal of Dostoevsky, but the char it's a very different focus. And, and again, if you think of Peterson's worldview, that what life is really about, what gives it meaning, what gives it purpose, is a focus on suffering. Um, that you get in Dostoevsky. You get a focus on suffering, on pain, on struggle, that life's almost unendurable, but I'm going to try to keep going and so on. That's very much Peterson's ethos. Ayn Rand is the opposite in regard to this. It's not that pain doesn't exist. It's not that suffering. You see the characters of uh, uh, Hank Reardon and Dagny, the, the characters that Peterson's focused on. You see them suffer and struggle and experience pain in different kind of ways and it and like significant struggle and so but they don't think of it as this is the essence of life this is what gives meaning to life this is what gives purpose to life they think of it as no what i want to do is achieve something in my life i want to build i want to reach happiness not just fight suffering and just as i think ayn rand would think of peterson's worldview completely wrong. And I don't think she would put it as superficial, but it misses the essence of life. So his perspective, I think, on Ayn Rand is, yes, yeah, she's focused on joy, happiness, achievement. That's meaningless, superficial, and so on. And again, read Atlas Shrugged and see its emphasis on values and happiness and a, and a deep emphasis on building a life around values and happiness. And think if you can come out of that thinking, yeah, this is superficial. For those who in our audience who already have read Atlas, one thing to note is how this view that some people have that Rand's characters lack emotional depth is, is a view that is itself, uh, it's, it's the view of the, of the villains and antagonists of those heroes in the novel, they often say things like James Taggart says to his sister Dagny, he, he thinks she's unfeeling, has no emotions. And it's the same issue. And you see this portrayed in the, in the novel that, that they equate having emotional depth with caring a lot about suffering or actually suffering a lot themselves. And they don't have the conception that uh, there could be a passionate pursuit of values and concern for happiness and that, that there could be some emotional struggle and depth involved in that, too. And so they just don't even put it into the category of the kind of thing that could be spiritually meaningful. 
Uh, and this is a view that the author herself anticipated and addressed and answered in the book itself, and yet another reason to, to read it. So we should wrap up on car. We've been going for about an hour. Um, and yeah, there's just one call to action here, one resource we would like to share with you. If uh, you're intrigued by this conversation and this dispute, uh, don't take our word for it. Go to the source itself. Take a look at Atlas Shrugged. And by the way, if you go to this link, einrand.org slash atlas hyphen shrugged, you can sign up to receive a free copy electronically of the book, uh, courtesy of the Ayn Rand Institute, who has brought this program to you today. So we're very happy uh, out of our own self-interest uh, to help you get an easy access to this book. And I hope many people who are Peterson fans consider doing just that today. That's all we have to say. So uh, thanks, Ankar, for having this last minute conversation with me. I think this was a gauntlet that was thrown down that we needed to pick up. I think we, uh, so, and it was, it was fun to do. Yeah, thanks, man. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.